Would you please turn with me to your study outlines that are there in your program, and as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho at the Baptist Community Church, and also Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad they are joining us today for our study of God's Word. We're continuing our summer series called The Journey, based on the book of Deuteronomy. I've heard so many reports that Pastor Eric just did a spectacular job uh, the last couple of Sundays, just people grabbing me out in the lobby, emailing me, texting me. I'm telling you, I heard he just did a great, great job. As a matter of fact, people were emailing me and saying, Glenn, why don't you stay on vacation? You look tired, and I think you should stay away longer. So today we're going to continue with violence on the journey. And it's based on our next two chapters in Deuteronomy, chapters 20 and 21. You'll continue reading that, and part of the reading we do today will be what you read there in our daily reading tomorrow morning. And I want to just kind of warn you and apologize in advance. This sermon is going to be way more informational than inspirational. But if you hang with me till the end, there will be some inspiration at the very end, okay? At the very end of the message, there'll be something that's inspirational. But this is going to be highly informational because I really believe this is an important subject to deal with. Uh, Violence in the Old Testament is a barrier for many people to follow Jesus. It's just a struggle people have, particularly in more modern audiences and and, and modern people considering the claims of Christ and the claims of the Bible. And violence in the Old Testament is just a barrier uh, for many people to follow follow Jesus. Uh, We got a chance to spend some time with our daughter Abby and uh, her her husband Kenny there in Washington, D.C., and their daughters Felicity and Avonlea. And here's Avonlea here in, here in the middle. And uh, she, it's hard to keep up with her because much of the time she's Avonlea, but she switches between Disney princesses just on a moment. And you have to figure out what Disney princess she is. She's Belle in this particular picture right here. And uh, she's just always switching from one Disney character uh, to another. Here she is. They just sent me this picture just this morning uh, from the East Coast that she's passing out programs at her church there in Washington, D.C. So I'm telling you, even if you don't like to take the program, you're going to take the program on that day. I don't care how many trees you kill, you're going to take it. And so Avonlea and I were walking, we were going on a walk, and she's holding my hand, and so she's Avonlea as we we walk along. But then when we turn uh, to go back about a quarter of a mile back to the house, instantly she changed into Elsa uh, from Frozen. And I guess there's a scene in Frozen where she says to her sister, Anna, she says, don't follow me. Stop following me. Stop following me. Any of you parents remember uh, where that scene is? It says, stop following me. So she instantly turns into Elsa. So she turns to me and shakes her finger at me and says, stop following me. Now, I've got to watch her because we're on a street, and so she's in front of me, and she starts walking, and I start walking a little bit. She turns around, stop following me. And I'm like, okay, she turns around, but I have to follow her. I have to keep close enough. And so I follow a little bit long and stop following me. Uh, Finally, she goes, after the fourth time, she goes, I've told you four times, stop following me. And, uh, you know, but I can't stop following me. So she continues to walk and I continue to walk behind me. And finally, she turns to me and she said, Jesus said, stop following me. Jesus said, stop following me. And I thought to myself, I'm pretty sure Jesus never said that. Uh, Jesus never said that. He wants everybody to follow him. And so violence in the Old Testament is this barrier uh, for many people uh, to follow Jesus. And that's why we need to know about it for ourselves, because it might be something we struggle with, or for the friends 
Uh, our oikos, the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15, and our sphere of influence, people we work with, people we go to school with, um, that we want to take to heaven. Our assignment from God is to go to heaven and to take our oikos along with us. Now, this is a remarkable passage that you're going to read tomorrow in your daily reading, Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 20. And it's remarkable because it's from 1400 B.C. This was written 3,400 years ago. And you're going to be just amazed at it's basically talking about a volunteer army. And let me tell you, in 1400 B.C., there were no volunteer armies. There were no, it was a cruel environment. It was a cruel culture all around the world. It was just dog eats dog, and it was a cruel environment. There were no volunteer armies. You had to fight on behalf of the king or whatever your leader might be. Uh, this that we read in these verses would be remarkable in many places in the world today. It would even have been remarkable in the United States until the draft was eliminated in 1973. I was the last year uh, that had a draft number. And I remember getting my draft card. You get your draft number. How many of you men remember getting a, a draft number? Any of you here? And uh, I was the last year that had a, a draft number. And then it was an all-volunteer um, army when the draft was eliminated in 1973. So until 1973, these words that we're going to read would be remarkable. So how much more remarkable are they from 1400 B.C., 3,400 years ago? So let's uh, kick off with Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through... uh, Let's start with verses 1 through 4. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, Israel, today you're going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officer shall say to the army. Now we pick it up with verse 5 and just look at this. The officer shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not yet begun to live in it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may begin to live in it. Are you kidding me? Nobody does this until very recently with the advent of more modern um, volunteer armies. Okay, let's go to the next verse. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Okay, say, JT, you would get out of the army in this uh, case with Alicia. Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else may marry her. Verse 8, then the officer shall add, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home, so that his fellow soldiers will not become disheartened uh, too. Today, these excuses won't even get you out of jury duty, I'm telling you. You try those with the judge. They're not getting you out of jury duty, much less out of serving in the army in 1400 B.C. This, this is just absolutely crazy when you consider particularly the culture of that time. When the officers have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. When you march out to attack a city, make its people up an offer of peace. Okay? If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, 
put to the sword all the men in it. Now it's starting to get to something that would make us uncomfortable in a modern context. Okay, verse 14, as for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves, and you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. This is how you're to treat all the cities that are at a distance, that is outside of the promised land, outside of Canaan from you, and do not belong to the nations nearby. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. Now, here's where uh, the struggle comes. The Hebrew word here is karam. And it's a Hebrew term for the complete consecration of things or people uh, to the Lord, often, not always, by destroying them. And so when cities or animals or people had had been consecrated to some other god or to the demonic, uh, these, these gods we believe were demonic or satanic, so when these people or these animals or these cities had been consecrated to, dedicated to the satanic, to the occult, they were supposed to be um, destroyed, completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, now here's the reason for this. You say, boy, that's harsh. But we're going to learn how awful the Canaanites were. They were just utterly sold out to Satan. This was a demonic, satanic-based society. Otherwise, if you leave them alive, they'll teach you to follow all the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. When you lay siege to a city for a long time fighting against it to capture it, now here's another weird restraint. I mean, you never, in this time, it was scorched earth policy. You never had any restraint on the army. The army would go in, they would rape, they would pillage, they would murder everybody in sight. This is utterly weird for 1400 B.C. Do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? However, you may cut down the trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. Uh, One Bible commentator says this, In the ancient Near East, military power punished their enemies by indiscriminately laying waste to the land, but here the practice was to be avoided because it showed a lack of respect for God's creation and an infatuation with the harsh and excessive use of destructive power. So when you've been reading through Deuteronomy and you come to those uncomfortable passages, remember, in context, in 1400 B.C., in the Near East, th- these would be utterly kind. I mean, even, I think, some of the things they said about the military, until we had a, the advent of an, a volunteer army, they're just absolutely crazy. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about um, the, the medical practices that we found in 1400 B.C. and how they, they just don't seem to fit that time period for another 3,000 years? Well, these restraints on the army are utterly different than anything that was in the world until 3,000 years later. Now, even when they were called upon to bring judgment on an entire country or society, there still was a way for those in that country that wanted to follow God to escape from that judgment. We see that in the battle at Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in 
and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute Rahab, we'll find out, her house, and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she showed faith in God by hiding the men that Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So even when utter destruction was called on, there still was a way of escape for those that repented and turned to God. But the problem remains that people struggle with. How could a loving God not only allow this to happen, but command it to happen? Now, here's the general principle this morning. We don't know. We don't completely understand. Only when we uh, get to heaven will we understand the ways of the Lord. The ways of the Lord are mysterious. I texted our, our COO, our Chief of Operations, Pamela Barden, because I have just been praying for the bus barn to collapse for many years, you know, that, that eyesore over on Holt Avenue. i just been, oh God, you know, with the earthquakes and everything, oh Lord, so yeah, every time there's a major earthquake, like we missed the big earthquake you guys had. We were on the East Coast, I called up, is the bus barn still up? Bus barn still up. And, and, and the day that Notre Dame burned to the ground in France and Paris, I texted Pamela and I said, the ways of the Lord are mysterious. Let me get this straight. Notre Dame has burned to the ground, but the bus barn remains. I, you know, I just, I don't understand his ways. And then Paul writes to the Corinthians. He said, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And they had lousy mirrors back then. It was just burnished brass. You could barely make out your image. They didn't have great mirrors like we have today. But then someday we're going to be in heaven and we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And so we're just not going to understand until later on. Now, however... As, as we dig into this, there are three dangers that I want us to avoid. Number one, rejecting the whole Bible because we do not understand a part of it. And you know, I'm so concerned about this. I, my heart has actually been weighing on me about this for our society, for our culture, in American culture, for young adults within our culture. Uh, because I think there's just this tremendous danger of rejecting the whole Bible because we don't understand a part of it. And we don't do this in any other area of our lives. I mean, we don't reject the science of physics because we don't understand everything about it. How many believe that there is a science of physics? Let let me see your hands. How many believe in that? How many understand everything about uh, physics today? Uh, Nobody does. Uh, or, or, Or not buying a car because we don't understand everything about that car. 
I mean, you get to know a car enough that you make a reasonable decision to purchase that car, but nobody knows everything about that car. You don't ever know everything that went on in the assembly line. You don't know if somebody putting your car together uh, had a fight with their husband or wife the night before, and they're grumbling about that. while they, You don't know if they had too much to drink. You don't know if they were smoking weed when they were putting your car together. You, you don't know any of that, all right? And yet you, you get enough, you understand enough about it that you can make the decision to buy it, but you do that recognizing you don't understand everything about it. But somehow, in the most important area of life, where we will spend eternity, that is the most important decision we'll ever make. So many people say, well, this part of it is just hard to understand, so I'm going to reject the whole, the whole thing. I love that saying that says, all that I understand about my creator leads me to trust him in that which I do not understand. You know, you're not gonna, we're not going to understand. We're still going to wrestle with doubt this side of heaven. And there's tremendous evidence for following Christ. I mean, we have had so much of that this summer. Sean McDowell gave us evidence for the resurrection. He gave us evidence for there being a designer behind the design of the universe. A few weeks ago, I gave evidence that the Bible is a supernatural book. There's all kinds of evidence, but we're not going to understand everything. And we need to be very careful of the danger of rejecting the whole Bible because we do not understand a part of it. And, and, the, and the, the risk is greater because of what I referred to a few weeks ago called Pascal's wage, uh, the Pascal's wage, where, uh, wager, uh, where he said that if we follow Christ and if we are wrong, it's not that big of a deal. We just turn into dirt like everybody else turns into dirt. But if you reject Christ and you're wrong, the consequences are far greater they are eternal in nature. It's the difference between heaven and hell. The consequences are that much greater. And Pascal's wager was that if we just weigh, if we bet on Christ and we're wrong, the consequences are not that great. If we reject Christ and we're wrong, the consequences are oh so great. Uh, Kimberly uh, sent this to me yesterday morning because she thought it was funny. Um, uh, we put it up there. I just tried that new app that shows what you'll look like in 40 years. <laughs> now, that's true for me and for anybody my age and older, uh, most likely. But if we put in there 80 years instead of 40 years, it's true for all of us. That's what we're going to look like in 80 years. And so there are these huge eternal consequences for following Christ or rejecting Christ. And so we just need to be so careful about rejecting the whole Bible because we do not understand a part of it. And then number two, considering the parts of the Bible we dislike uh, to not be Scripture. Now, this has been around from the very beginning. There was a guy named Marcion in 140 A.D., and he was a false teacher, and he didn't like the God of the Old Testament. So he just took his Bible, and he tore out two-thirds of it, got rid of the whole, or three-fourths of it, and tore out the whole Old Testament. And then he was anti-Semitic. He was anti-Jewish. And so he hated all the parts of the New Testament that were Jewish, and he hated the whole Old Testament because it was Jewish. So the only thing that was left was the writings of Paul and the Gospel of Luke, because the biography of the life of Jesus Luke is the least Jewish of, of all the Gospels. So he took the Gospel of Luke and the writings of Paul, and that was it. 
I've talked to you before about Thomas Jefferson, the third president's, uh, about his Bible, and you can see it on display at, at his home in, in Monticello in Charlottesville, Virginia. And look how he just went through and cut out parts of the Bible he didn't like. Uh, how many of you, there are certain parts you wish you could cut out? Uh, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm just trapping you. But, oh, there's a side story. I don't have time for this, but I get teased all the time. I'm, always, I'm often asked to be on ordination councils for pastors where you question pastors that are being ordained. And, and they always, I'm kind of the comic relief at these things, you know. And so the question, the other pastors, they always joke with me about. But I'll, I'll ask the candidate, I'll say, if there was one part of the Bible you wish you could cut out, what part would that be? And, and the point behind that question is to say, it is our authority over the parts we don't like as much as over the parts we like. That's the point behind it. But then the pastors tease me the rest of the day. They'll always start by saying, well, I, for one, love the whole Bible and not just parts of it. Like, never mind. That's enough of a tangent on that. But you can see just how, how he cuts it out. Here's the one that'll break your heart. This is on display at the Bible Museum in, in Washington, D.C., just a spectacular museum. It's brand new. It was put together by money from Hobby Lobby. So any of you, how many of you have ever bought anything from Hobby Lobby? Okay, well, your profits helped to build the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., but this one will break your heart. This is, because they, they don't hide the bad parts. They don't hide the ugly parts of, our, of the history of the Bible. And here's a special Bible made, parts, parts of the Holy Bible, selected for the use of the slaves in the British West India Islands. So they took a Bible that was created for slaves and they cut out of it things like the slaves being delivered from Egypt, the Israelite slaves being delivered out, out of Egypt that Eric talked about last Sunday. Uh, they cut out of it in the New Testament books like the book of Philemon where Paul challenges a slave owner to release his slave and, and to give him freedom. And then number three, using the difficult passage as justification for doing what we want to do. The Crusades were mainly about politics and not about religion, but at the culmination of the First Crusade, at the capture of Jerusalem and the defeat of the Muslims on July 15, 1099, uh, the so-called Christian soldiers took 10,000 Muslims and beheaded them in the Great Mosque. And so we've got to be very careful of taking the difficult passage and using it as justification uh, to do uh, that thing which we want to do. So just with the few minutes we have remaining, let me, let's just go through quickly uh, 10 considerations as we wrestle with this issue. Number one, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. Uh, Psalm 102 verse 27, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now there is a sense in, in which humanity is growing up and God treats us differently at different times. And so in the Old Testament, it's like God treats the children of Israel like children and then treats us somewhat differently by the time we get to the New Testament. For example, um, with our children, we use rewards and punishments, right? I mean, we use or we punish our children. If they do wrong, we reward them if they do right. But then when our children become adults, we use different forms of guidance. We want them to do the right thing because it's a value. They have the law written on their hearts. It's not, oh, we're going to give you candy if you do the right thing and we're going to spank you if you do the wrong thing. No, we don't want to do that when they're 30 years or 35 years old. We want the law to be written on their hearts. And the same thing is true for God. He treats them like children in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, which is the final word, 
you find absolutely no violence. There is zero violence in the New Testament with regard to using violence to persuade a person to follow Christ. There's, there's, there's none of it like there is in other works, religious works like the Koran, which was written 600 years later. Which, and it's remarkable you don't find any of that 2,000 years ago, which you would expect to find at that time period. There, there, there's none of it. Jesus never advocated that. There's only one obscure passage, and Jesus completely clears it up 11 verses later. Let me illustrate. In Luke 22, verse 35, then Jesus asked his disciples, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And then skipping down to verse 38, the disciples come back and they said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Now, if the Bible had stopped there, for 2,000 years, Bible scholars would be debating the, the meaning of this. They would say, is he talking about self-defense? Is he being ironic? Or is he talking literally? But there's no need for that debate because Jesus completely clears it up just 11 verses later, picking it up in the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, John tells us that it was Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. Uh, Matthew reports that Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So Jesus is not talking about law enforcement. He's not talking about armies that gather to deal with injustice. But what Jesus is saying here, that when it comes to persuading a person to follow Christ, you never, ever use violence. And there is a huge difference between somebody doing violence in the name of Jesus in spite of what he said as opposed to because of what he said. Now, I say this carefully, but I believe there are places in the Quran that justify violence. I mean, Muhammad was a general. He was a military leader. And there are passages there that could, you could say, I'm, I'm doing this violence because of what I read here. But that is a huge difference than in the New Testament where people that do violence in the name of Jesus are doing it in spite of what Je clearly Jesus taught. Number two, our God is willing to involve himself in the messy parts of our humanity. God didn't invent war, we invented war. There was no war in the Garden of Eden. But within one generation of us being rebellious against God, Cain killed Abel. One-fourth of the world's population killed the other fourth of the world's population. I love this quote by John Hoffman. Uh, John Hoffman writes, now we come to what may very well be the most powerful discovery we'll ever make. To see God as a God who involves himself in our human wars, as sinful as they are, shows us that we have a God who has chosen to involve himself in our lives as sinful as they are. God could have functioned antiseptically, separately, for, separately from us. After all, he's God, righteous, clean, and holy. He could have functioned in an entirely transcendent way over and above us. He could have miraculously wiped out the entire human race and started all over again. Or he could have simply turned his back on us and moved on out into some other place of his universe and let us rip ourselves apart with whatever pathologies are ours. 
Instead, he chose from the beginning to enter into conversation with the part of his creation that bears his very image, fallen in rebellion and sin as we are. Number three, the biblical writers do not engage in in cover-up. It's one of the major evidences that historians say for the truthfulness of the Bible. Because there's this principle among historians that if you ever include something that's embarrassing to yourself, that most likely is true because people usually lie to make themselves look better and not to make themselves look worse. Number four, we should be careful not to pick and choose parts of the Bible based on our comfort level, like we looked at already with Marcion and Thomas Jefferson. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. So we take what we understand, and we struggle with what we don't understand. And I don't know about you, but my hands are full with what I do understand about the Bible. I got my hands full with that. Uh, Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. That's the part we're challenged with. Uh, Number five, judgment is the inevitable consequence of sin. In Genesis 3, right after we rebelled against God, immediately uh, judgment came. Uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of the result of sin is death. Number six, the Canaanites were under God's judgment because of their sin. And I don't have time to go into detail about it, but the Canaanites were the Nazis on steroids. You say, oh, Glenn, that's an exaggeration. Boy, when you study it archaeologically, historically, the Canaanites were the Nazis on steroids. Let me give you one example. The Nazis would kill the children of other people. The Canaanites would kill their own children. And so the Canaanites were the Nazis on on, on steroids. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 Verses 9 through 12, you see all the things that they were involved in, their detestable ways. Uh, Let's go on to verse 10. Uh, They would sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire. They would sacrifice uh, to their gods their own children. They would burn them alive. They were involved in divination, sorcery, interpreting omens, engaging in, in witchcraft. Verse 11, casting spells, medium or spiritus, consulting the dead. They were sold out to Satan worship. Uh, It says, anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before them. Uh, Number seven, God had been patient with the Canaanites. He said to Abraham in 2000 BC, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. He was patient with them for four years. Hundred years, like he's patient with people today. Second Peter three verse nine: The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know why Jesus waits to come back? Because he doesn't want you to show up in heaven by yourself. He wants you to show up into heaven with friends and family, with your oikos by your side. He's he's waiting to give us one more opportunity to reach that friend or that family member for Christ. Number eight, Israel was God's instrument of judgment on the Canaanites. Now see, this is the problem where we struggle. It's when God uses a human instrument to bring about judgment. Uh, This is at the emotional level, not the intellectual level. Um, I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, when God himself sends down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, 
you know, I, I can see that. When he sends the waters of the flood in the time of Noah to bring judgment, I can see that. But when he uses humans as a middleman to do his judgment, that's when I'm squeamish. But it's very similar, for example, uh, to the Allied Army in World War II. Uh, I truly believe that the Allied Army of World War II was God's human instrument to bring judgment on the Nazi regime. And that's exactly what God is doing with the nation of Israel here uh, with regard to the Canaanites. Number nine, judgment is found in both Testaments. Number 10, grace is found in both Testaments. Um, Ahab, most wicked man that ever lived in the Old Testament, uh, repented, God forgave him. Manasseh, one of the most wicked men that ever lived, repented, God forgave him. Nineveh, one of the most wicked cities ever in existence, repented, God forgave him. Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham says, God, will you kill them? Will you destroy them? If there's 50 righteous people, God says, I won't do it for 50. And then Abraham started thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, how about for 45? Nope, I won't do it for 45. How about if there's 40 righteous people? Nope, 30, nope, 20, nope, 10, nope. And he stopped there and he should have kept going because there were only four, Lot, his wife, and their two daughters. And there were only four righteous people and God rescued them out of Sodom and Gomorrah and then brought his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, I read one Bible commentator that said, that with the spies that went in to check out Jericho, they didn't need to, that was not a reconnaissance mission. They knew everything they needed to know to, to attack. It was not a reconnaissance mission, it was a search and rescue mission. God saw a little prostitute named Rahab, young lady. And, and maybe one night she stood on the top of a roof and looked up at a starry sky and said, oh God, if you're out there, will you let me know? Oh God, if, if, you're, if you're real, somehow could just send me someone to help me. And these spies show up, and out of that decadent, wicked society, they rescue Rahab and all of her family before the judgment fell. Romans 6.23, for the wages, the result of our sin is judgment, it's death. But the gift, the grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's family said,